Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to The War on Military Pilots. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And tonight is Monday, February 19th in the year 2024. Tonight we're going to hear from two military pilots, Lieutenant Commander Hans Tui and Major Brian Moody. This is another element of the story of this attack on our military with the vaccine, the COVID shot, the COVID-19 death shot. And again, the challenges that our soldiers are being placed under, the threat that they're being placed under, and the torment they're being placed under again and again. What's different about this interview here is these two officers have come together and have also started to work on a solution to overcome other problems that are related to this. And so through this interview, you're also going to hear one of the developments they've come up with on building out an alternative to our current banking system. This is good innovation, and it's something to listen to, and it's an interesting twist in taking evil that's been waged upon them and then pivoting and saying, we're going to put our heads together and come up with a way to solve a greater problem. Our military is in a a desperate place right now. Our nation, for that matter, is in a desperate place. And these stories that we continue to hear continue to reinforce that. From January 6th to what's been going on down at our border, to the destruction of our military, to the infestation and corruption and destruction of our church. It's all one big mess and maze of things. And this week you're going to hear interviews on all of those topics. It's going to be a very busy week for interviews. And it's one of these things that ultimately I'd have to say this, and it's one of the hardest things to face. We fought the war for those of us that went overseas, went at home. The protection and defense, which ultimately the greatest defense we had against all of this was the pulpit, failed. And that's the hard part. And that's the part that we have to start coming to grips with and starting to move things to another level. Before we get going tonight, one of those things that we are left with in this is a realization that debt has been used as a weapon, and it's horrible. It's one of those things that once it gets into your life, you can't stop stop thinking about it. It's it's something that consumes you. It's something that keeps you from sleep. It's something that keeps you from relationship in God. I'm very happy to have a sponsor on with us right now called Done With Debt, and they can become your lifeline. Done With Debt has some very ingenious methods of reducing debt and to get your in, get these interest rates down and to get rid of debt faster, really, than most people think possible. They will look at your situation. They have an ability to analyze what's being what's available to you, ways to put strategies together to reduce bills. They have negotiators that can reduce the, the interest rates. And they've got a very skilled set of people that look at the many options that are available to you to reduce the debt. Done with debt has options that are also very time sensitive. 
So you need to take advantage of these. So if you head on over to donewithdebt.com, donewithdebt.com, you're going to meet some quite brilliant people that are involved in working with strategies to reduce your debt load if you're suffering from that. So again, head on over to donewithdebt.com. Now, Patriots, on a really important update, and it's our Give, Send, Go that we're currently running, and this is for the Bars Nation Ministry Flemingsburg Center. As you know, I've talked about this, and for those of you that haven't heard, I'm going to give you a little bit of a rundown tonight. First of all, we launched that campaign yesterday afternoon at 4 p.m. We are at we our goal is $27,500, which is covers the cost of getting the property off the market as then we pivot to going to our second level of fundraising to get the full down payment and then move it into full contract. This property is is intended and we would design to be one that once it's put in holding It'll be held under what we call a private membership association, PMA, so it's outside of the reach of government. It'll be listed under common law, and the best thing about it is it will become the center point for many things Bard's nation. Let me go through a list of things that have come through prayer, which I think are very essential. This vision of, of this property is this is where we had Bard's Fest in September this last year. This is Mandolin Farms. And Willie, the owner, it was committed to wanting to sell it to us at that time. It's taken a lot of work in terms of prayer, structuring the, the sort of deal that we have before us, the structured deal to make this come together is amazing. And it could only be said to be that of God. So we're continuing to press forward to try to raise this money for the initial push. And we're trying to get that done this week, if possible. I know it's a very short notice. One thing I want to make very clear on I just have to say for, for my, my own conscience, don't donate if you can't afford. I get that. We can use prayers immensely on it. But for those of you that have donated, thank you very much. It's humbling to see the commitment that we have. And this is, we've only had 32 donations and we're already at $7,565, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you all. I'm sure that we'll make this. I'm committed to this. And, I, and God has really placed it before us in such an amazing way. But here's, here's what has come out of prayer, that this would be a home for Bards Fest and Jesus-centered events. It'd become a kingdom stronghold, a location to prepare the saints for the work in the ministry, training and building the ecclesia and the governmental authority, building the church without walls, uniting the tribes of the remnant, training and awakening the fivefold ministry, apostolic, prophetic, healing, deliverance, and raising the dead, a national center of revival and repentance, a center for spiritual healing, a stronghold for Operation Vineyard to rescue, heal, and restore God's children, Strategic Coordination Center for Kingdom, Center to awaken the gifts and talents God has called each of us to, Center to inspire God's cultural gifts of writing, music, storytelling, traditional crafts, Location to train the talents of land stewardship, Restoring biblical purity in the church, and Awakening the Warrior Hearts in Christ. The idea of this center, besides the events like Bards Fest and, and also Clinics and seminars is big on the list. So that would mean things, especially when we go to county by county, that would be integrated into this to where we would have regular events year round. The best thing about this location, if you if you were there is uh, in, in the fall, is there's 285 campsites on 55 acres and it has a private lake and it has bathroom facilities. So there's a lot of ability. Plus the outdoor pavilion can seat up to 400 people. It has a stage for presentations. And as you know, it's, it's a fantastic place to come together and build fellowship. So our goal is to be able to 
put raise the money this week uh, for this first level of fundraising to get this thing off the market and into into a position where we can start going into the second phase. So any support you can provide that you're called to do would be greatly appreciated. We are moving along here well. I'm very, very impressed and very humbled. And this is just one of those things. I think this is such an offering. It's And there's no question in the prayers that we've had, prayer team, people in Bars Nation, people that have written me, this is truly something that would be a fantastic place for Bars Nation Ministry to be at and have as a kind of a centralized hub for the nation. It's powerful. And there, as you, if you were there, you knew that this place has a very unique sense to it all. And it's a very unique place for us all to come together. So pass it around. The link is below the podcast and share it. And again, thank you all for all the, for the support you provided. It's amazing. And we are really getting this together. And I, I believe it's going to happen without any question. I mean, this is God's calling on the heart. So we'll just keep running that way. And that's good. Patriots, one of the problems that we have right now in our nation is that so many people remain unconscious to the magnitude of the destruction of this vax. The numbers keep rolling in and they just get worse every time I, I read it. I read a number tonight. I can't validate this number, but I can. I know the group it came from, and they're a heavily researched group. There's currently a claim that 270 million Americans took at least one shot. That's a stunning number, but it fits the numbers we've heard. And on a worldwide basis, it's in the billions. So the problem we have here is the damage of this shot is extreme. And we really don't know what the outcome is. We don't even know totally what was in every vial. Every time we come about some sort of research, we know that they've changed the mix somehow or another. They have lined people up and they, they take one vax match, batch where another group of people get a, a placebo or they get another mix. It's It was a complete ridiculous event. And if you listen to Catherine Austin Fitz, who I do, her con condemnation of this is severe. In fact, she has said openly that every president will now support the the delivery of something and a bioweapon to depopulate the United States and points the finger at President Trump for supporting $10 billion in this event, which is Operation Warp Speed. That cannot be denied. And whether wherever you sit with a relationship with President Trump, as I have said all along, regardless, there has to be accountability on every single person involved in this. There was $10 billion spent on Operation Warp Speed to move out this injection that has already cost millions of lives and injured millions of people. Edward Dowd's work continues to show that the millennial class has pretty much been eradicated. And what's interesting is, I shouldn't say eradicated, but deeply injured. There's 10 million people in the millennial class that have been affected by this death shot. And it's no surprise to me that when you read the immigration numbers under the Biden regime, since they took over that entire deep state nonsense, They've brought in about 9 million illegals. You can start to see how this is playing out. They're trying to replace key sectors of the population. They're trying to get, I've got word today that they're already bringing in people with green cards and fast-tracking them to citizenship, and they're moving next to illegals that will be fast-tracked to citizenship in the military. So this is a full-on replacement strategy we are seeing in effect, and it's, it's getting very dangerous. Now, tonight, we're hearing from another a couple guys that from the Declaration of Military Accountability. Now, this is obviously the letter that was launched on 1 January, and it has made a lot of wakes. 
This is you can find the information on this at Declaration the Declaration or Declaration of Military Accountability Declaration of Military Accountability dot com and dot org either one or dot net excuse me dot com or dot net those either one uh, you'll find the website there you can read through what that is you can also sign on if you haven't in support of the of the supporting document the original document is there to read over this is a, a call towards having accountability within the ranks of our military in particular our senior officers and as i've emphasized on this so much and this story is so important is that every single officer in the military has been and when i say every single general excuse me every single general in the military is complicit in allowing this illegal order of the vax to be mandated upon our soldiers We've all suffered through this. This is a nationwide problem. Employers being complicit, doctors being complicit, nurses being complicit, pharmacists being complicit, and then business owners across the spectrum being complicit in in mandating some sort of compliance to some sort of 1984 draconian hell that we got our nation put to. All of this at the core was driven by a weakness of faith and a weakness of our ability as patriots, as a nation of patriots, to stand up. What we're left with is a remnant. And that remnant is is quite interesting to me. The more that I run through it, I'm asking myself the question of if, if this was, if I was to design a selection process of the only people that were really worthy of standing up in, in a moment in time when the world needed leadership, I would go right towards those that chose to stand up against the vax. And unfortunately, that's where we're at. This is a very critical time, and it's going to be a difficult one as a nation to recover from. And for that matter, the world is all going to be changed as a result. That's the other side of this whole story that we know that we're not going to get into tonight, but this is much bigger than just the United States. But they know very well, those in power, that if they can weaken and break the United States, the entire world is their oyster to harvest. And the world doesn't realize that yet. And that's the sad part. And nor does does a large cult of idiots that are in this nation, they continue to push for the woke agendas and the damage that is being done. This is a very disturbing era in our history of people that are truly twisted and turned by a, a woke agenda that is not explainable any other way than just to say they're ridiculous. Now, before we get going, I want to play this one piece here. And this is a post from Billboard Chris. I played it in this morning's show, but this is just to frame the, the level we have here. We have the Declaration of Military Accountability, 231 signatories that are standing up to reset the moral base and direction of our military under UCMJ, legally and ethically, but holding people accountable to the law. And then you have this other side of our culture that's driven by people that are broke, broken, I should say, spiritually broken, and they are they're in a place where they have gone so extreme that they literally are now supporting and and promoting the support and, and empathetic support for pedophiles. I'm gonna read this post very briefly. Look at these women feeling sorry for pedophiles. They say pedophiles pedophilia is a sexuality. One even says babies are born with it. We're told to overcome our negative feelings about pedophiles. This is the cult of queer theory, the same trans-like compassion they feel for pedophiles is why so many leftist women cheer on men in women face as their own rights are destroyed. They have completely lost their moral compass, 
They are type. These are the all. These are the types who applaud the maiming and sterilization of children, believing that children are born in the wrong body. Fools so blind to evil, they become useful idiots for it. It's truly demonic and it's very core. I just want you to hear this piece before we get going tonight. Talking about biology. Hold on a second. Let me get this reset. Here we go. Most of us feel discomfort when we think about pedophiles. But just like pedophiles, we are not responsible for our feelings. We do not choose them. But we are responsible for our actions. And we must make a decision. It is an our responsibility to reflect and to overcome our negative feelings about pedophiles and to treat them with the same respect we treat other people with. We should accept that pedophiles are people who have not chosen their sexuality and who, unlike most of us, will never be able to live it out freely if they want to lead an upright life. We should accept that pedophilia is a sexual preference. Statistics indicate that there will be one or two of you who are struggling with some form of pedophilic interest. These people can't talk about their feelings because they know that they will be hated for it. I truly do believe that every person is longing for love at some point in their life. And what if this love that you really wish for will forever be impossible? That must be a really lonely situation to be in. Yes, from an emotional point of view, I can kind of understand that you want to, would want to eliminate these people from society. However, it doesn't make sense. And that's because we're talking about biology. We're talking about a sexual orientation, something that we simply cannot change. And on top of that, every day, new people are born with the same difficulty. So it's not practical to eliminate these people from society. They haven't done anything wrong. No, they haven't done anything wrong at all. Just they've just completely corrupted children is all they do. We are in a horrific moment in our history right now where this sort of insanity that we have has permeated into almost every level of our society. And so when we talk about the strength of men and needing the strength of men, we're dealing with a massive level of corruption here in our world that is unlike anything we have ever seen. Sadly, part of the problem we have here is with, with this is there's an acceptance to the corruption which we're currently dealing with. And there's an exception of this, to the corruption of everything around us that is somehow this new normal of people dropping dead of heart attacks, of soldiers being destroyed by this vax, of being court-martialed out of the, out of the ranks. This is all part of a new normal that has become so entrenched in our cultural understandings that there's very little questioning going on of anybody right now. So we are truly in a new era in, in our time. And, and unfortunately, this new era is not getting going away anytime soon. I don't really know. And we, talk, we started looking at the way ahead on so many of these things. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is that direction which we're going and where is our where is our nation going? And unfortunately, there isn't an easy answer to any of that. 
we are in a in a time right now when so much of what we believed in our lifetime we've proved to be a lie and so much of what we have seen around us has tormented and traumatized so many people i really believe that a lot of the nation is still walking in a coma and then you have those that have stood up in a bold way in a in a very bold way to stand up now and to do the right thing and that's where the De- declaration of military accountability is so powerful and is so patriots i'm really on honored today to welcome two members hold on just a second i got ahead of myself and that's where the declaration of military accountability is so strong and so important to have a, a group of people that are willing to take the stand at all costs and to hopefully lead the many out here in an organized fashion to start taking back this nation. We need strength and we need leadership. We have, and I, when I say these comments, I want to be very clear. There is no judgment placed on this community in Bars Nation. I, if there's anything I can say about this following in this, in this podcast and this what has become a ministry over time, it's the strength and what this has happened in the rank and file of all of Mars Nation. People here have suffered through these consequences. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of massive people out there that are just not facing it. So the big part of the DMA, the Declaration of Military Accountability, is to highlight a core group of people in the military that have also reaching across and looking across the aisle saying, we're with Everybody's together now in this fight, and that's the big thing. But there isn't enough traction on this, and we can't. We have to admit that if we can change the military in the direction of the military, the nation will change. So with that, allow me to introduce you tonight to Lieutenant Commander Hans Tui and Major Brian Moody, both pilots and both signatories on the Declaration of Accountability. Patriots, I'm really honored today to welcome two members, two signers of the uh, Declaration of Military Accountability. One is Lieutenant Commander Hans Tui, and the other is Major Brian Moody. Uh, Both of them are pilots, so you're going to hear a very interesting story. And as well, both of them have come together to try to address yet another aspect of this war that's being waged against us, which is this fiat leverage banking nightmare that we're in to try to provide an, an avenue for people to have capital that they can access and use in full control. So it's going to be an interesting discussion today. Guys, welcome to the show. How are you both? I do good, Scott. Thanks for the invite. Really appreciate the chance to talk to you and thank you for everything that you've done. I've uh, become a devoted listener of your, of your podcast and it's very encouraging. It gets me motivated twice, twice a day. Thanks, Brian. That was Hans, right? Sorry. Sorry, Hans. Hans, Thanks, Hans. Appreciate it. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Scott. Doing really well. I appreciate you having me on. Awesome show. We love the fight you're having uh, for the Patriots and for Christ. Thank you very much. Hans, let's start with your story. I mean, you're a, you said you were an MA-60 helo pilot and in the Navy. Let's talk a little bit about this whole COVID con and how that's affected you. Yeah, so I'm a H-60 Romeo pilot by trade. Um, I was on my final tour of my initial contract, and I was doing a grad school program. I'm up in New England as everything is unrolling, and I uh, realized pretty early on I'm not going to be uh, taking the inevitable shot that comes with, uh, you know, the, the inevitable endpoint of this madness. So um, I was fortunate enough to be 
at a distance and away from all the pressure that my peers were experiencing, all of the lies, all the coercion, all the pressure tactics uh, of the of the Navy commanders, everywhere, everything from the admiral level down to the the uh, individual squadron commanders who were, uh, if not intentionally, um, unintentionally lying and coercing and breaking the law. So by the time I got back to San Diego for my operational tour, uh, I signed a three-year contract to extend uh, my service. And I was gonna go to a squadron as an operational department head, so I'd be back in the cockpit. Before I could do that, I had to do a training syllabus for a few months to do a uh, cockpit refresher. And when I got here, um, I got benched right away and wasn't allowed to fly or complete the syllabus. So I remained in a student capacity in limbo for 18 or 20 months or so, uh, waiting to be allowed to fly. I was sent to Kingsville, Texas on a IA, individual augmentation to do nothing down there. There was no job for me. They just felt like they had to put me to work somewhere. Um, and then when the mandate was lifted, they offered me, well, they didn't offer, they, they told me that I could extend my contract by another two years to compensate them for the two years that it cost themselves by benching me. And I said, that's not how a contract works. I, I will fulfill my contract. I have one more year left on contract. I'll, send, I'll go to my squadron. I'll do what you need me to do, but I'm going to get out after what you've done over the last two years. I'm not going to give you any more of my time. And I'm only beholden to the one contract I ever signed, which you written, uh, which, which you wrote and uh, my service end in June, 2024. And they said, well, if you do that, you'll be in breach of contract. Um, and so they recouped two bonus payments that they had already paid me and they recouped my monthly fly pay. They took that all back and assigned me a pretty hefty debt and then uh, sent me to a ship on the other side of the country for about 11 months to finish on my contract. So I'm currently stationed in Norfolk, Virginia on a ship not flying, uh, doing an 03 job as an 04. Um, obviously a punitive uh, set of orders when I live two miles from a naval base with 50 ships and if they needed to find a random job for me. Um, they could have easily kept me in town, but uh, I'm getting out in June and I found the uh, I found Brian through the mandate fight, another pilot, and we started talking economics and we ended up linking up and uh, we're both getting out to pursue this full time. So that's the, uh, the the Navy side of my story, which is quickly ending. And I'm very excited to never look back on it. Hans, let me just get some clarity here on a couple of things. Okay, we know that pilot training is millions of dollars. It's not cheap. Yes, sir. And so they take two years away. And because you won't sign an extension, they are going to take away your your bonuses and your flight pay because you won't extend for two more years to play their game two more years? Yeah. So they said the, uh, the tour you signed up for was a three-year tour. And since you never made it to the squadron, if you want to complete your tour and stay in your contract, you have to do a full three years at your squadron. And so I said, well, I've, I've followed every single order except for the unlawful one um, that you've given me. I've been ready to fly. I had a medical up chip every single annual flight physical. Um, I've been ready the whole time and your policy has been keeping me here. So that that cost is on you, but obviously in typical military fashion, um, they put the, the, the consequences of their mistakes on me and they said that they didn't offer me a new contract. 
I didn't sign. I wasn't offered anything to sign anything to say, here's, you know, we'll compensate you for the additional time, et cetera. It was just either agree to start your, start your clock over, or we're going to find a punishment tour for you. And we're going to take back all the money we paid you for this tour. So they, uh, I said, that's like, I'll see you in court. I'm going to, I'm not going to give you any more time because of what this has put my family through. Um, and so, yeah, so they, they, they took back the money and sent me across country on a one year ship tour. So, and they're short on pilots now. I know that for a fact, right? Very, very short, very short. Unbelievable. Okay. Brian, let's, let's hear your story. Major Pennsylvania Air National Guard, K, KC-135 pilot, and you got another story. Go ahead. So my story really begins back uh, 2002 when I enlisted in the unit. I became a pilot in 2009, and uh, I had served as a reservist. I served, I worked outside jobs. I've worked there full time. So I've always been, I've been a part of the unit in a, in a lot of different manners. Now, if you're a full reservist, I think, Scott, you understand that you oftentimes work with people for your entire career if you stay 20 years. It's not like the active duty where we move every three years. Right. And so you, you really develop some embedded relationships. Uh, so 2021 comes along and the mandate's dropping. And I decide for all the various reasons and the things you've discussed at length with, with your audience that I'm, I'm simply not going to take this shot. So we're, if that mandate comes in August, we're ordered to take it by, I think the end was October, if I recall correctly, October 21st, I want to say it was two months later. And we stood in an auditorium where the base commander stood in front of all of us pilots and said, if I can't quote it exactly perfectly, but it was really close to along the lines of, if any of you think you're not going to have this shot, you will be out of my unit by December 31st. So De December 31st would have marked 19 years and 10 months in service for me, two months shy of being able to retire. I think I have 10 deployments under my belt. I had an absolutely impeccable record up to that point. I'm an evaluator pilot for the unit, which is kind of the highest level you can get as a flying squadron member. Uh, so I decided in that moment that I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to comply with this illegal order. So searching, praying, actually Follow, or I was following Jaron Jackson at the time, who's been a guest on the show, and he put a little thing out that there was a there was a group looking for potential plaintiffs who were being wronged, and I I submitted for that my whole story, that was with defending the Republic at the time. So we ended up dropping the lawsuit in uh, the Middle District of Florida. There were sixteen or seventeen of us plaintiffs, and that was the beginning of that fight. So I filed a religious accommodation request, dropped the lawsuit. That uh, that raised a lot of eyebrows. That that, that was suing it, it sued the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Air Force, and the Secretary of each respective branch. We had somebody from every member on that lawsuit, or from every service on that lawsuit. And uh, it was interesting. As soon as the day it dropped, I was flying. When I landed, I didn't even know it was going to drop that day. We still weren't sure what day it would be submitted into the system. But when I landed, the base commander and the vice wing commander were basically waiting in the building for me to find out why I had the gall to go after their bosses. And so that started the fight for us. And, and as Han said, through that fight, 
through the network, you know, we kind of met and linked up and decided to take this fight into the economic front as well. This is really amazing to me. I'm going to dig into a little bit of this insanity in the military. Let's start, start first of all, with, with Hans. Talk a little bit about your duty as far as a, and you said, is it an MH-60 or H-60 pilot? Uh, MH-60 Romeo. It's, M- uh, the, the Navy has two types. It's basically, I mean, if you're not familiar with helicopters, you, you're basically looking at a Blackhawk painted gray. Okay. Um, my model's a little bit different. We do anti-submarine and uh, anti-surface warfare as well as electronic warfare. How long was your um, training? Uh, well, flight school is about two years to get your wings, and then you have another year for the syllabus specifically for the Romeo. So I didn't get to the fleet until about the three to three and a half year mark, um, probably three years to get to my actual first tour. And uh, from there, it's about eight years of tours. So when I signed my extension to, to agree to another three years, that was the first point at which I could have gotten out. And that's the point that pilots either agree, I'm going to go the 04 track and go to make go to department head um, at a squadron, or I'm going to get out and go to the airlines. And the airlines offer, you know, obviously no deployments and a pay raise and a bonus. And so that's, that's the point where the hemorrhaging is really happening for the military. Um, I had opted to stay in because I, I had a fantastic record up to that point. Um, I would put my, I would put my uh, evaluation up against any of my peers. Um, I would just on the tail end of a two year master's degree at Harvard that the Navy was paying for. Um, and so I, on paper, I, I, I had a great shot at, uh, going all the way, uh, as far as our community goes. And, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I was ready. I was excited to go. I was, I was planning on doing the full department head tour and I was going to do 20 years. Um, I wanted to make a full career of it. I'd never thought anything other than that until this all happened. And that totally just shattered my, my illusion of, of what, what I thought the military was, what they stood for, the values that we hear over and over. And I just saw repeatedly, you know, I would get from, from bosses or from uh, sympathetic uh, people that I knew uh, pretty much a hundred percent was either either just didn't really care, separated. Most people didn't really, a lot of people didn't uh, ask me about anything. It was kind of awkward. But the one, there was a few that, you know, said, hey, I, you know, I support what you're doing, but, you know, you're bearing the, you know, you're going to bear the consequences of these, of this on your own. And so to a, to a man, everyone put the career over standing up for what was right. And uh, I sat in my boss's office and I showed him U.S. code 11707 alpha. I showed him the documentation from the companies the I did, you know, the presentation for the whole emergency use, everything. And this is kind of halfway through the fight. Now that's all kind of common knowledge. And, you know, the, the military is never going to admit it, but you know, everyone knows that was an unlawful order. But at the time it was still a debate of as to whether or not it's lawful, because now they're saying we have the approved product, et cetera. And I was saying, no, they don't. And here's all the paperwork you need. And, uh, said, well, you know, even if, even if this is true, you know, this, this is your fight. And well, like, I'm, I'm your, I'm your guy. Like I'm, I work for you. You know, what is this leadership? Like if I'm showing you that what's happening is a crime. And so I watched as everyone just prioritized career. Um, and some either just didn't believe me that it was an unlawful order. I'm, I'm sure that there's really not any question anymore. 
but um, it, it really just, the, the idea of leadership, what we're taught, honor, courage, commitment, the core values. Um, I saw career preservation uh, as the primary core value of Naval leadership and uh, realized that there's nobody, you know, no, nobody in my chain of command is going to, is going to not even stick their neck out, but um, even like an email to the detailing office where they're trying to send me across country on orders that are very punitive, um, just asking, hey, just, I know you know people at the office that's doing this. I've sent them legal uh, documents. I've sent them a statement showing, laying out very clearly uh, why myself and several JAGs that have reviewed it agree that what you're doing is a breach of contract. Can you at least just tell their bosses to review it and the detailers uh, and the detailers bosses all the way up to the two-star admiral in charge of the personnel office? Uh, I know all. The, I know they all know because I cc'd all of them on every piece of correspondence, and uh, that's what I'm going to use in the Court of Federal Claims and the DODIG lawsuits. But or sorry, the DODIG investigations. But uh, I, I'm not that optimistic that there's going to be any kind of uh, recourse through those means because you know everything that's come back so far that I've seen is you know we've investigated ourselves and we found that we did nothing wrong and there's the uh, the military back pay. Uh, Avenue. Um, so there's some there's some really solid folks working on that. The Dale Saran team has been the uh, the bright spot in all this as far as the uh, the legal course of action. Um, but overall, just total disillusionment. And uh, now, looking at everything that's going on in the world and kind of seeing our Navy leadership through a new lens, I I wouldn't change any of it for the world. Um, the idea of going off and, and supporting these these wars that we're in right now, um, it, I, I can't even imagine leaving my family for this. I have a pregnant wife and a and a toddler right now, and uh, you know, being on the other side of the country for something like this has been difficult enough. But the ship that I'm on, fortunately, is broken right now. But they're desperate to send us out to uh, the Middle East, and I have no interest in that. So. Um, yeah, it's been it's been very eye opening, and I wouldn't change any of it. And I, if if none of the if I don't ever succeed in the back pay case and get all the money that they took from me back, if nothing ever comes from it, I still wouldn't change it because I'm passionate about the uh, the business that that I've joined Brian in. He's taken me on as a partner. I'm actually feel like I'm helping people, so it has been a blessing. And um, it throughout this entire ordeal, it's been very clear, and I've had a sense of comfort and peace that this is the right path. So that's sorry, awesome. that was more than you asked. No, it's good. It's good. Brian, let's talk a little bit about your side. <clears throat> Give me an idea that the type of training it takes to elevate up a KC-135 pilot. And then what's the status of our pilot need in the Air National Guard right now? Yeah, uh, it's very probably similar to what Hans has said. So post-commissioning, you have to do an initial flight screening. You follow that up with 13 months of undergraduate pilot training, approximately six months of KC-135 training, plus a survival school. So all told, it comes to just shy of two years of training if you're lucky enough to go straight through without break. Uh, I've seen estimations of how many millions it costs. I have no idea what the actual number is today, but probably multi-million dollars per per pilot. Uh, believe it or not, in the in the guard, our numbers probably aren't as critical as active duty. 
because just like Hans had mentioned, a lot of guys jump ship to go to the airlines and they, they join guard units as a way to go part-time, try to finish their service. But we are young. So where we used to have, we used to have uh, pilots that would stay in for as long as they possibly could, which is if you make 05, that's 28 years of commissioned service you can stay in. We used to have guys that would be clawing at the door to stay when they hit their time. And now we have people exiting as soon as possible. So it's uh it's it's not as strong as you would it would it as it looks and the numbers are a little bit deceiving the commitment level just really isn't there this is amazing and it just seems to me like we've created a culture where you're in, you're encouraging people to go in on these tracks you're talking about where they're going to get the base training and then get out of the military so they get it for free and have that juncture point where it, i think you said there's an extension and then you can jump out and get out and take that training and get into the commercial side. But to essentially not give a real any true commitment to the service. Would, would you both agree with that? Yes. And in and the 22 years, I'm still in the reserve unit. In the 22 years I've been in, I have to say that the generation that is following me is the least committed generation I've seen. And I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't say that because I actually am of the belief that you know, these young folks that are teenagers now in early 20s are going to be the people that turn our country around because they're entering a broken system. And I'm very optimistic in our youth. But, the, you know, those folks that, I, that I'm that i seeing now that are around 30, that it was, it was all in, get trained, get out. And uh, uh, like, a, like it's unprecedented because it, it's usually a culture that people love to be a part of historically. Mm -hmm. Hans, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I I mean, the, the expense of going through flight training on your own is astronomical. And so it does make sense that, you know, your, your crop of pilots are majorly going to majority going to come from the military. Um, and then you have incentives to, to jump ship. And so that's always going to be a balance and that's inherent in the, in the cost of civilian flight training. So until there's, you know, affordable options to fly, uh, and train yourself on the civilian side, that's always going to be a struggle. So I definitely understand that, you know, we spent a lot of money as a military training pilots and then they jump ship that that's, that's not going to change. However, um, and I can't confirm this, but I believe that they've extended the uh, required service commitment after you get your wings for as long as I've been in, it's been eight years after wings, which puts you at about the 10 year mark with two ish years of flight school. Um, so I think they are extending that they have, they offer bonuses to stay in. That's the bonus that I took that they've since taken back. Um, and obviously they're trying to, you know, they, they do a couple percent pay raise each year with the NDAA. So it's a kind of a losing battle and it's sort of inevitable. And I don't, you know, it's not necessarily the military's fault that pilots jump ship just because there is a better offer out there, but they don't help their, themselves with, with, you know, things like have happened over the last couple of years. Uh, they certainly are doing themselves no favor in that battle and not making it a, uh, place that people want to stay involved in it's it's got the same um you know kind of trending in the same direction of, as uh the corporate world as the government world and just the general pc woke nonsense is is fully infected the military now as well and so a lot of things beyond just the the COVID hoax uh 
we're, we're driving that trend already. And then that just accelerated it. And then at the same time, on the airline side, you have a mandatory retirement age. And so as their largest demographic of, of pilots is forced to retire, you know, they, they need people just as much. And you can see that they are lowering their standards. And so it's kind of a sort of a self-perpetuating downward spiral at the moment. Um, it definitely but does. it certainly is true that, yeah. Well, it definitely seems like we're in a race to the bottom. I think that's just where, Absolutely. what are you each hearing about the consequences of these injections? I'm hearing, I'm not in the pilot circles, but I'm hearing things like, like problems with thinking, focus, eye problems, and then other normal health problems. Are you hearing the same thing as consequences and having pilots actually out because of this shot that they took it? I have I been haven't, out of the aviation. Sorry, go ahead. Brian, you go. I haven't necessarily seen anything yet on a, on a personal level where somebody was downed directly. But since the shots came and almost immediately after, I do know pilots that spent, well, I've spent a year not flying, couldn't control blood pressure. I have, I know pilots that had irregular heartbeat since. I know multiple pilots that have had that. I've I've personally witnessed one wearing their their iPhone or their their iWatch rather that showed them just suddenly going up to a 147 you know beat heartbeats per minute pulse at uh sitting down doing nothing and this is actually a guy who runs marathons. Um there 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 have been issues. I've seen people in the non-pilot world that have, you know, now start now having problems with epilepsy. They're absolutely causing problems. And, and I think the worst is yet to come. I, I hope I'm wrong. I think you're right. Hans, what, what have you seen or what do you know? Yeah, so I've been out of the aviation community for all intents and purposes for a few years now because I did that uh, master's tour where I wasn't around aviation at all. And then I I was briefly at that squadron uh, waiting to fly, but I never got to fly. So, and then since then I've been sent to a ship. Um, so I, I can say that I've never in my life just heard of a young, healthy person just collapsing. And it seems to be nearly a weekly occurrence on the ship that I'm on. Um, someone just, just falls down, faints, and like, and that's just normal. Um, for almost, almost every week they call a medical emergency and turns out that someone just collapsed and then took a while and then they got back up. That to me is, is pretty crazy, but I think we're becoming jaded to that. We had, we had someone pass away in their rack. Um, the next day, somebody just found a 30 something late thirties, I think, um, just, just dead in the sleep on the ship. And, uh, of course, no, no, no causal factor, just this, the suddenlies. Um, so in the aviation world specifically, I just haven't been, I haven't been flying and around pilots uh, in that capacity. I, the, the story that to me was very impactful was a friend of mine who uh, his first tour had heart surgery and fast forward five or six years, he's on the uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the carrier that was sidelined in Guam for three months. They, uh, they forced the shot. He got the first one um, and went straight to the hospital with a cardiac issue and cardiologist said under no circumstances, can you take the second one, the second dose, because this first one puts you in the hospital, it's obviously untested. We're seeing, a, you know, a rise in uh, cardiac issues. Like you cannot take this. So I'll hand walk you through the medical exemption process. Here's your paperwork. Here's the cardiologist note. And of course the Navy said, no, you have to take it. 
you know, and that's, that kind of, I was already staunch against it and not going to take it. But for, for my friend that put him in the same camp where previously he was just kind of like, Oh, whatever, I'll just take it. But, but being told that for his health and the health of others, he had to take this second dose that just put him in the hospital when he had a cardiologist cardiologist note, um, saying not to take it, you know, that was, that was a very eye opening thing for him. And, uh, it just sealed the deal that was already sealed for me. I find this really interesting. You guys own your own business. You're, you're starting this, um, it's perennial wealth concepts that you're working on. It takes leadership. It takes commitment. You're coming from a culture that in the past has led the country in leadership. And I would argue that our leadership in our military is bankrupt these days. What has happened? What's your thoughts? Let's start with you, Hans. Um, so I guess getting to a bigger in the bigger picture of things, I think we've lost the moral high ground in, in, a, in these forever wars that we're engaged in. I don't know that we, I don't know that we really have the, 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 the justification for, for fighting, you know, and why do we lose in Afghanistan? It's because we have no stake there. We have no, you know, we're not emotionally attached to it. We have no reason to fight there. Um, I think we're seeing that trend over and over. And, uh, you know, so you have this political class of leaders that are making decisions, not from a warfare or strategy standpoint, but to achieve political aims. And that's above my understanding of, of war strategy, et cetera. I'm not qualified to speak on that, but it just doesn't seem like we, and I can say from, from, you know, the ship that I'm on, no one is, no one is, uh, passionate about these, these conflicts we're involved in. You can't even call them wars because they're not declared, but there's just, it seems like we've kind of, we drifted off the tracks a long time ago and I don't really see there being much direction because you can't really, you can't be in a, you know, bases in a hundred plus countries, um, kind of just going on the offense all over the world and, and expect that, that you're going to have the morale behind there. So there's a morale issue. Um, there's, you know, the 20 year pension system drives people to stay in. You know, I, I think about that all the time on the ship that I'm on. You, nobody likes ship life, at least, you know, from, from the pilot perspective, it, you know, we, we don't like it. Um, and so I, if I, I look around and I say, if they didn't have a 20 year pension, every single person here would be gone. That's past their first tour. You know, the, the senior officer, the officers of my, around my rank, you know, if there wasn't a 20 year pension they were striving for, they wouldn't be here. And so the primary motivating factor for a lot of people to go through the rigor of, of ship life is, is money. And so that is such a carrot that's dangled out there. And if that's your motivating factor, you know, you're going to make decisions based with, with that front of mind. And so nobody wanted to rock the boat on behalf of myself and the people that were fighting the mandate, because it's going to put your, you know, it's going to put you, you don't want to put yourself on the radar of your next boss up. And I saw that up and down the line. Um, so I can only speculate as to why, they're doing what they're doing, but I think it just stems from a lack of moral high ground and the wrong motivating factors, mainly this, this kind of financial hog trap that they have us in, which is partially, you know, why I'm energetic and enthusiastic about what Brian and I are doing now. Brian, you landed your KC-135 when that lawsuit hit in Florida. 
you had your commander waiting for you in the hallway. What was the outcome of that? And then just continue that into this whole thing of leadership in this day. Surprisingly, there wasn't a lot of direct discussion. I think they honestly just wanted to be there and, and make a little bit of presence. And, and I don't want to say it was like an intimidation factor, but I think they were just in the building to figure out what the heck was going on because they're, you know, the headquarters is a completely separate building. And, uh, and I, I just do remember the, you know, the, the vice wing commander making a snide comment of, well, apparently you can just sue the government because that's a thing now, you know, so they were there for a purpose, but it, they didn't directly confront me. I would say it was just interesting that, you know, you hardly ever see them and here they are the day that dropped. Um, I think the larger problem is really stems from culture and the less that, you know, as we've seen over the decades, really since the, probably the early sixties, this just insidious descent into a, into a precipitous drop of the lack of our culture's ability to proclaim Christ, to even speak about it. it. That has permeated the military culture completely. And if you look at even the thousands upon thousands of religious accommodation requests, almost all of those were Christian, not all exclusively, but they were rubber stamped no. Whereas if I claim to be a pagan, I can grow a beard as large as I want. And it's almost not even questioned. You know, so so that same cultural influence that's been happening, uh, the, the the war on Christianity is happening as well. I believe in the military, regardless of what they say. And so, as that happens, and and you think about all of the ways that the money moves in the military industrial complex, what you end up with is a lot of yes men. The only way to get ahead is to be a yes man. There is no Robin Olds. There is no Curtis Lemay. You, you have to say yes, regardless of whether it's morally right or, or not, you're saying yes. And, uh, it's, it's really like one of our core values is service before self. And I see a lot of self before service across the board, but the higher the rank you go, the, the more that's a problem. Very interesting. All right, Brian, let's talk a little bit about your business you guys have started because you you're fighting one problem which is covid con which is forced vaccination and at the same time you're looking at yet another problem which we all are very well aware of which is this banking nightmare and the uh, the sealing in of or dependency upon a fiat currency model and the banking banking control of our money so where did you start thinking about that solution that actually originally hit me in 2018 on a deployment. I came across a book called Becoming Your Own Banker. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say the first time I saw that title, it, it looked hokey. So I, I bypassed it. And then I came back to it and I read it. And it just completely changed the way I thought about money. Uh, and, you know, the, the author's name was Nelson Nash. He has since passed. And, and he talked about in our Federal Reserve System, the biggest problem that a lot of people don't seem to understand is it's not all coming from what the Fed prints. That is a massive part of our inflation issue and our fiat currency. But maybe just as large, if not larger, is the fact that whenever I deposit money into Wells Fargo's bank, they can historically, they could loan out nine times, 10 times as much as that. It's actually been cut off in 2020, and you, they can loan an infinite amount against that. 
And that's where the money supply expands. So we're, we're all told that the, the typical financial advice is to put your money into places where the major institutions being government, the financial industry, and the corporations can control that money and they can reap the rewards off of you, whether that be through taxes and, and keeping your money on hand, like in a 401k or, or, or those types of uh, investments or through corporations with their um, planned obsolescence. So you start looking at this and, and, and we found, and, and what Nelson Nash discovered was that we can take over that banking and we can take control of our money and actually fight against that inflationary effect by storing our money in whole life insurance contracts. And, uh, and it just opened up a whole world. And, and we found that this is the solution to the roller coaster that is, that is Wall Street and the tax, the, you know, the government tax effects looking ahead. You know, we, we, we are all taught in this world with our money to make a deal with somebody, with the government, because people don't realize, I, I like to pick on the 401k, that that's just a creature of the tax code. So we're making a deal to put our money somewhere where we take all the risk and we have no idea what our partner, the government, what their percentage of interest is going to be in 20, 30 years, depending how old you are, when we have $31 trillion in debt. So, so what Hans and I are doing is the solution to these problems to take control of our own capital and take control of our own lives so we can create a generational effect of freedom and wealth that, that gets not, it can't, you can't bypass it, but that can mitigate the effects of those big three. Hans, what's your thought on this? Hans, you there? Um, sorry. Yeah, so when my grad program went online, uh, I had plenty of time to read and learn, and I spent a lot of time reading about, uh, you know, kind of going down the, the rabbit hole that a lot of your listeners have really gone down, starting with Creature from Jekyll Island, understanding Federal Reserve, et cetera. And so... Um, I started thinking about, about finance and capital and, and I had been a big advocate of the traditional way for a long, long time. Um, I, I kind of now, when Brian sent me that book based on the way that I was just talking about economics and our threads was, uh, you know, kind of along the lines of the Austrian economic school of thought, um, he sent me that book and I initially tossed it aside when I saw that it was about whole life. And, uh, you know, a couple months later, I'm talking to my wife as we're, you know, finalizing this decision that we're going to be done with the Navy. I'm not going to accept their, uh, their non offer to extend. And so she's asking me, well, okay, what are we going to do about, you know, insurance, health insurance, life insurance. And I was like, well, I actually don't know. I said, I've got life insurance. If you had asked me for the first 10 years of my career, if I had life insurance, I would say, yeah, I have, SGLI, the uh, service life insurance, uh, $400,000. My wife is covered. That's a nice little check. That's how I would have, that's how I thought the first 10 years of my career. Um, I tossed that book aside, but I came back to it when I realized that's going away. My health insurance is going away. And I never really thought about this kind of stuff because in the traditional financial planning model, you don't think about that. You, you're told to grow your money. Um, there's conflation with, between saving and investing. So if you ask someone, you know, are you saving for retirement? They say, yeah, I'm putting money into my 401k. Well, that's not saving. That's investing where you take the risk. Saving shields your principal from loss. 
investing, you expose it to loss in the hopes of, of getting a gain, but not a guarantee. Um, and so I started looking at this and, and I, I went deep into the, the economic rabbit hole and, you know, like we've all read the creature from Jekyll Island. We know about fiat money. It's always going to go to zero. We know, you know, a lot of us know these things, but I kind of view it as two parallel tracks for economic preparedness. Um, you know, there's the prepping for collapse path and there's also the optimizing within the system path. And when I first messaged you, you know, the, the uh, advertisement for Birch Gold got me thinking that this message might be interesting to your listeners because, you know, I, I have gold and silver. Um, I have my Patriot uh, food supply. I have six months of food for my family. You know, I'm, I'm fully invested in the idea of long, you know, preparedness in the event of different variations of a collapse, et cetera. But at the same time, you know, the optimizing within the system that we're all in, that's the part that we're focusing on because we all still get paid in dollars. We all transact in dollars, everything I want to buy. And even my, my prepping supplies, you know, my, my long-term food storage, gold, silver, ammo, guns, land, acreage, homestead, water purifications, EMP shield, everything. I want those things. But the one thing they all have in common is they all take dollars. And so to go fully into having a pile of, you know, silver coins to barter with, I mean, I, I want to have silver coins, but I also want to optimize and, and for the, as a responsible, the responsibility that I have as a father is to make sure that my family is taken care of whether I'm here or not. And so I view this uh, economic model that we, that we teach and help people implement as as that other track to financial preparedness, which is optimizing within the system that we're in. As long as we're getting paid in dollars and as long as everything we purchase requires dollars, we should be the most effective stewards of that as possible. Brian, life insurance is a product that's very complicated. It's, it has become very complicated because they've tried to turn it into investment vehicles. And then they've also tried to sell the, the issue of like term life, which extends just as the, it's kind of a, in case you die sort of product. Whole life is a is a different vehicle. And there's a lot of restrictions on it in terms of, a lot of regulations on using that in terms of investment and so forth. How are you seeing this? How is this function within your model to give people power in their investment? That's a simple thing. Because you're literally turning people into their own banker, correct? Correct. And, and, and by doing so, we're creating an economic value of certainty in their life, which is which is absolutely incredible. So we we designed these products. First, one phenomenal thing is it's it's the only product you have to qualify for, both financially and medically. So that is a barrier of entry that uh, if you are qualified, should make you think about whether or not it's something that's worth having, even against conventional, or I shouldn't even call it conventional wisdom, typical advice we, we we utilize these products if, if you think of whole life insurance one of the big misunderstandings is how the cash value works which is just it's uh, the easiest way to think of it is like the equity in a home whereas what you mentioned term that's like renting a home so i'm renting this because i need a place to live now i'm probably never going to stay and i'm never going to have ownership in that so it's not going to last as long as i do my whole life is the home that i plan to live in and as I purchase this, we're going to, we structure these policies in such a way using particular products and particular companies that have been around for 150 years or so 
And we structure it in a way that it can create high cash value or high equity early on for the same money. Now, it is a contract, which is what we love about it. It's you have the first contractual access to that equity in the policy. And we teach people how, because we can use that as leverage, we want to use the policy to do the major purchases and the major investments that you're going to do anyway. But we're going we're gonna to leverage our contract to do it. So when we leverage that contract, the cash and the capital we've stored and built equity in continues to operate, grow, and provide a level of certainty in our lives while we can deploy that money and, and do all the things we would have done anyway. So instead of giving our fees to the banker and our interest to the banker, all of that comes back in our direction and it goes it either goes back to a company that we're part owners in a mutual company or it comes directly back into our life so it, it helps us create a way where we get the financial tailwind of all the things we do anyway in a in an asset that has certainty that has guarantees that is tax-free that gives us a tax-free inheritance so that we can you know, we can pass this money on to our family and enrich our family and, and generation after generation can do better as long as they learn this and live by it. Did, does that answer the question well enough? Yeah, it does. It's good. It's really good. Okay. So we're dealing with um, an opportunity then, and I, because I do agree with you, there are two tracks. We have a, a concern for the, the preservation of wealth, which is a big one, especially in a time when they're trying to tank our economy like they try to tank people's lives and are doing that with the, with the bottoming out of the fiat dollar and a hopeful rollover into a CBDC. And then you have this, so there's that concern, which is really more hard assets, whether it's precious metals, property, land, cattle, that's that hard asset shift that you want to get things in. But we have a transactional-based capital, which is needed because we have to be able to have access, as you say, to buy the goods and services that we need in the current economy. And so is when you're setting people up, are you functioning as a, in this, in the Jared Jackson model, are you empowering people to function as in like common law that we are the bank or are you creating a structure under which they're working so that, for example, you become the bank manager and they're, they're only partners with you. How does that work? Let's start with Hans. Yeah. So, when, so the name of that book, becoming your own banker and, and the, the man who initiated this process, you know, it, we're not becoming a bank. We're not becoming a brick and mortar building. We're not getting uh, any kind of certifications in banking. Banking is a process. It's just it's just managing the flow of money and of capital. And so, if you just as a basic example of you know what a bank does, you know you put your money in in Navy Federal, and uh, you know you store it in a savings account. And you're making three percent interest, and then your money is tied up in your four hundred one k and your home equity and you need to buy a car, well, you go to them for a car loan and they charge you 9% interest on that car loan. So their return, you know, they're, they're paying you 3% and they're, you're giving them 9%. So that's, you know, it's a 200% return on their part, right? Because every dollar that they put in, they're getting three. So that, that is a very basic level, you know, you could call that the banking function. And what we're doing is we're just removing the bank from that scenario. So the life insurance company um, as Brian mentioned, you have secured first line creditor access. There's no such thing as a run on the insurance company the way there is on a bank because their capital is 100% reserve backed. 
So we're not participating in an inflationary economy. And, uh, you know, we, we really emphasize it, it's not, we're not becoming a bank. We're just assuming that function and we are reaping the rewards of the flow of money. Because if you just think about all of the interest that you're giving out to someone else, um, every payment that you're making in a monthly payment um, or the opportunity cost of things that you're spending your cash on, uh, the opportunity cost of that cash, you're paying a lot of interest out of the system. And so we try to keep that within our own personal economy. And we, we want to just assume that function, if that makes sense. That's the banking aspect of it. Let's talk about it, how it functions, Brian. And so if I'm coming to you, we're going to set this up. Whole life can be a, can be a front load, single pay life, or it can be a, a payment system. Um, what do you, how are you setting this up? What's your structuring? And then what, how does it work for people to be able then to use that in a mechanism that they can build their capital and wealth? Well, we first need to understand that this, there's a, a, a massive difference between saving and investing. And so right now in America, the average savings rate in 2023, if you, if across the 12 months was, I think four and a half percent, I figured that number out a couple of weeks ago. And, and I want to say it's right around four and a half percent, which is abysmal. Uh, so the question is, how can we get you to increase your savings and use this as that vehicle? So I, the money has to be stored somewhere. It, it flows constantly and it, and there's one pool of money in the world ultimately. Where are you going to store it? Is it better in your bank? Is it better you know, under your mattress? Is it better turning into gold? Which we can do all of that anyway. So I like to think of it as an ongoing process that hopefully you're gonna continue to make deposits the rest of your life. And there's, there's multiple reasons for that. It's the one shot deal like you're talking about a one pay product can be powerful, but it actually is going to create a taxable event. And we don't want to give the government any possibility of gaining taxes if we access that money later on. Um, but yeah, money's going to flow through our lives forever. So I want this to be an ongoing process that continues to expand your system and expand your banking possibilities, your personal banking possibilities, and expand your wealth forever. So I would typically take a client, we're going to figure out where's your money flow now? Where is it not being optimized? And how can we how can we create this system without actually changing any out-of-pocket costs just based on what you're already doing with your money? And I want to move it and do something more efficient with it that, that protects you, that gives you uninterrupted growth, that gives you the guarantees, the flexible loan provisions, the liquidity, privacy, and future passive income streams. So I'm thinking of this as a lifetime goal. And, and it really it really becomes a process that's going to take over your whole life, not take over your life, but it's it's going to continue through your whole life. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that's actually parallels the right type of thinking, especially when you're dealing with a whole life product. So really, what yeah, you presented- it is a one hundred percent. I'm sorry, it is it is a one hundred percent long range thinking prospect. If somebody comes to me and actually says like. I want this in here and I want this in here now. And I want, you know, just like, like pretend I want to buy a stock and I want to get 20% this year. And if not, I'm losing money and I'm out. I would actually try to explain, I, I might tell them to try to think long-term, maybe reread the book we mentioned. And if they're dead set on, you know, today's value, uh, they're probably not going to be good for this process. This process isn't going to work for them. This is really a long-term process. So when I, I started policies, I have four children. 
on as soon as I learned about it on, on the first three. And my fourth one was born since, and he got his first policy at 14 days old. And I'm thinking about how that can be a benefit to them when they're 70. You're talking I'm thinking about how you're, you're talking about a model. Then it's a thinking that sets up generational wealth is what you're really building. Absolutely. On. Okay. It's this, all about a, how you think. Everything is about how you think here. Yeah. This, no, this is good. I mean, now I'm getting to the core of it because this is a problem we have even in, in land. So with land, we don't think of it in terms of generational holdings. We think about it as a transactional holding that we do for now. We're going to turn it and burn it and make the capital gain and then move on. What we don't understand is elites don't do that. The power broker of elites place land into versions of private membership associations or private trusts, and they never leave the family. So the land that they acquire continues to be piled up in there, and it becomes a generational transfer and holding of wealth. So with, the, with this policy, as I'm hearing what you're saying, is it's a, it's a setup for you to start thinking with your children how to set them up in the future. But then they that wherever that gains for them that comes out at that end and that payoff, which is the whole life component, then that itself would hopefully be converted into more generational wealth for future generations. Is that a fair way of thinking about that? That is exactly right. And, and as a matter of fact, I already have plans. I mean, my kids are young, but as soon as I have grandchildren born, Lord willing, I'm still here, I will open policies on them. Because if you think now, if we're thinking generationally, Scott, most people when they have children in their 20s or maybe early 30s, that's a place where they're a little bit financially strapped. So if we're really thinking generationally, now the now grandpa's 60. Grandpa can afford to start the policy because he has lower expenses. And so he should be setting up his grandchildren or grandma should be doing it. And, uh, and, and then that should continue. So now that 30 year old parent has grandchildren, the next generation, and they skip a generation and start the process again. And there is no reason that in a couple generations, you are not born into massive wealth. And, and if, and if you also pass your principles, imagine what you can do for the kingdom with that kind of leverage and that kind of capital. You know, unfortunately the, the Rothschilds, as we know, are, are rotten evil I, I believe but if you go way back to ray or mayor rothschild that is that's the trust they set up that all the rothschilds could have access to the family wealth through the trust but they had to pay the money back with interest and they could only use it for particular interest education business ventures land and all the money always had to go back to the trust paid with interest so that it would always expand so he was thinking generations ahead now, unfortunately he and his family haven't done positive things with that but that's where we can fight the same battle doing positive things that's well said what's the website where people can find out about this right the, the website is perennialwealthconcepts.com that's p-e-r-e-n-n-i-a-l w-e-a-l-t-h c-o-n cepts.com i made it short and easy for everybody so the typing would always be right <laughs> <laughs> you sure did yeah um <laughs> so and the engagement with you then is to go to the website and then to do what to to uh, request an information from you or how does it work yep if you just go to the contact page there and uh and input your information it'll kick right back to us and we'll get in touch with you we, we have a major overhaul of the website about to launch so 
there, there will soon be a landing page there that they can get more information, but that, that should be launched here in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to wrap up with a, but, a question for both of you. Um, and then we're going to jump to prayer, but, <clears throat> or end with prayer. You guys have been through a similar situation. You both have followed career paths that have put your, one of the passions that you had, obviously, as aviators. And you have now had to in, both face that terminal end to your careers due to a complete con that was put on by our government. It's probably worse than a con. I would say it's probably a, a weaponized system designed to destroy us, but lacking that exact proof. What would you say to people right now that are facing some of these difficult decisions? Because we have people that are faced with two and this is where you hit the, 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 this kind of crucible. They're worried about their future, which obviously has a financial route, and many of them want to serve their nation. And that's a difficult road to place right now because typically thinking, you would think that it's possible to go into military. You've already said it before, Hans, get a pension, spend your 20 years, and get out and go. Most of that pathway that we know is destroyed. It's not there anymore. So now you've got people that are looking at the military. There's an adventure aspect to it that I'm sure they're still interested in. But they also have to face themselves in terms of wealth building and generational wealth building. We are talking about right now, which you're representing here, is a shift in mindset. So Hans, what would be, and then I'll end with you, Brian, what would be your advice to somebody who's at that entry point to look at a career path ahead? And where would you, what would you tell them with what you've now experienced and seen the belly of the beast, so to speak? It pains me to say, uh, given the way that I was raised and what I've always believed, but um, I couldn't, I, I couldn't advise anyone join the military right now. Um, if I had people that were 18 and asking me, I would say, don't do it. I believe in a local community. I would say the most important person that we are electing is our local sheriff. Um, I would say join your sheriff's department, run for local office, uh, join your state militia. But I just can't, I wouldn't advise anyone to join the military right now. There's, there's no leadership. There's no, uh, there's no moral direction. And uh, at, at the head of it all is an administration that I, I don't uh, have any faith in um, uh, across the whole spectrum of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot more discussion there. But, you know, it, I, I, I won't, I wouldn't advise someone to join, but if you're young, you know, the thing that, we know for sure is that one day you're going to die. Uh, so on the financial planning side, the legacy side, uh, preparing for your family, um, we try to match a guaranteed outcome to a guaranteed result, which is you're going to die uh, with this whole life product. You have a guaranteed uh, tax-free death benefit for your family. Um, we want to start, we want to flip the traditional model from grow your money, save some, and then think about protecting down the road. We want to start with protection. You know, we just lost two seals in the Red Sea uh, a month ago. Um, you know, that's if you're joining the military, you're, you're signing up for that. So start with protection. And this is an asset that we can get you to where whether you are here or not, you will be providing the income that you would have otherwise earned if you pass early. In doing that, it's the best, most secure savings vehicle. And from there, we can then grow. Brian and I are both doing a lot of investments through our policy but we warehouse our capital first, we filter it into this policy, and from there we grow it efficiently. Um, so I guess 
I would say that the same people who did COVID, you know, painting with broad strokes here are the same people that are in charge of your financial lives and are directing the flow of your capital right now. So time is not going to stop. You are going to get older. Um, and part of cash value growth, if you get back to an economic understanding of it, is the passage of time leading to an inevitable guaranteed future event. So don't waste that time. I, if I could go back 10 years and every single client we've had says the same thing, I wish I'd known about this earlier. I would encourage you to explore this now, whether you have a family or not, because you can never get, you can never pay a premium for 2023 that's locked away, growing, secured, and protecting your your current production as well as your uh, your family in the future. So don't don't waste that time. As far as joining the military, uh, I'd say give it a couple of years at least. Brian, what are your thoughts? Same thing. As far as the military, I, I I'm gonna kind of say something similar to Hans. We all live until we don't. And so there's four, I'd say, major pillars uh, to everybody's life. Faith, finance, family, and fitness. Family includes your close relationships that are, there may be friends that that you would consider you know, important in your life. And if we think about what I said in the beginning there, and when it comes to all four of those pillars, we all live until we don't. If you're going to, whether you're going to join the military or not, hold fast to your faith because that day could be tomorrow. That day could be in 50 years for a young man about to join the service. But, uh, you know, put your faith in Christ, believe the gospel, and that's going to be the most important thing that could possibly happen for you. Same thing with finance. Like let's let's do exactly what what Hans just said. Let's match that guaranteed outcome with a guaranteed event being the payout, and we can utilize that product and that system to benefit our family in in just massive massive ways. Start young, start early, and and get yourself ready to be able to separate if the military takes an even worse turn leadership wise. Uh, hold your family. Let make sure your family knows your values. Make sure your family knows what you think about them, write them letters, write a legacy letter. You know, so much of this is generational thinking of what we're talking about, but how many, how many young men pass away and their kids never even know how they felt about them because they never said it and they never wrote it and they never shared those, and them, those family values that are important to them. So make sure that legacy is already in their minds as young children and, and fitness is just obvious. Uh, you'll probably live a little longer if you stay fit. So so do what you can, whether that's avoiding shots, eating healthy, staying active. Uh, it'll help. It's good, guys. I like it. I like well, these thoughts are good. Generational thinking, generational wealth, generational thinking, period, is really hard for people to get. And it's necessary to get back to it because it used to be like this. And we need to get back to that way of looking at things however we get there. So I'll encourage people to head over to the website and check you guys out. I think it's a... I know for myself, if there is, when you said whole life, it was the one thing that perked me up because it's the one product that I know has a tremendous amount of benefit to use. And it's, if it's well handled, it can be a very successful tool in creating generational wealth, which is fantastic in the true understanding of what it will do. Guys, we always close with a prayer. And if it's okay, I'll close with a prayer. Yeah, I'd love that. Absolutely. Father God, I just want to thank you for this meeting today. And it's just a reminder again of how we have to shift our mindset and shift the paradigm under which we are living. We currently live in a short-term hyperbolic mode of, of the matrix, dealing with extreme levels of fear, 
that generate these concepts of doubt, of shame, and that fear works like a virus to ultimately seize our control of our thinking and limits our ability to really see past the limits of what this matrix puts on as limited event horizons. Father, we pray right now more than ever that these types of discussions will open people's thoughts and minds to think generationally. And at the root of that is the reestablishment as well as the family. To start valuing our marriages, our children as something not in the temporal time, but as something we're investing in for generations to come. To think wisely. To think in terms of the legacies of what we leave and the legacies of thinking the true values of what we are and, the, and what we stand for from the very beginning of life through the end of ours and the beginning of new life beyond what we see, which would be our grandchildren and far beyond. So, Father, we just hope that today this, this discussion will inspire that sort of thinking to reflect deeply on what the consequences have been from where we have been to where we're going and to truly seek that ancient path in Jeremiah 6.16, to think differently and to think more boldly and to think generationally as we try to set to reset this nation with you on the throne. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, appreciate your time. Good stories overall. Um, it's a difficult time for us all, but this is, a, this is a good concept. Shifting our mindset is probably the biggest part of this fight, the hardest one in the end of the day. And... Uh, you know, accommodations to you both for just taking the step into that direction to try to help make that happen. So nice work. Awesome. Yeah, we love Thank seeing you, where you are in this fight, Scott. And man, we're just so appreciative. Thank you for having us on. Absolutely. Hans? And I'll get that I'll get that book out. Okay. Fantastic. Hans, any last thoughts? Yeah, just rethink your thinking. That's a message that Nelson Nash pushed over and over. Um, just like we all, uh, a lot of us came to the... Uh, to the COVID fight and had to had to look at everything we thought we knew about medicine with a fresh lens. Try that with your finance and 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 try explore this. You know, it's worth asking the questions. Um, so we'd love to talk to you and thank you so much for everything you're doing, Scott, and really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. Well, pleasure. Bless you both, and uh, we'll stay in touch. And until then, until the next time, I guess. Right. God bless, man. Thank you, sir. Scott, God bless. Bye -bye. Good night. Good night. Good night. Patriots, that was Lieutenant Commander Hans Tui and Major Brian Moody, um, both signatories on the Declaration of Military Accountability. Not only do their stories once again reflect that darker part of this war that's being waged against our soldiers and against our nation, but that's also inspiring to hear the thinking that's going on to try to circumvent a lot of the financial issues that are going on currently so good stuff i will we will put that podcast i'm, I'm sorry website up underneath the podcast when it gets posted and kind of take it from there this is a critical time i keep saying this over and over and it is just so true is we are we're walking in a nation right now that's morally upside down and by the way that book that he mentioned is is called becoming your own banker Unlock the Infinite Banking Concept by R. Nelson Nash. In paperback form, it's available on Amazon for $20.76. Just so you're aware, it is available on Amazon. I'm looking at it right here. Okay. Well, Patriots, this week is going to be a busy week of guests. We have some really powerful guests on this week. And we're going to have um, His Glory on tomorrow with Pastor Dave 
and talking about a new film they have, and then we have some other people on that are just going to be amazing. So buckle up. Lots of topics to cover. Thank you for being here tonight. Remember to share the Go, uh, the Give, Send, Go site as we continue to push forward with that objective and goal. It's a big deal for all of us, and, I, and God has got his hands all over this one. So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time and this place for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I will see you tomorrow morning for Bended Knee. Until then or until the next time. God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something I just want to breathe again Dive into the deepest end Oh, I want to feel something Let me get back in my body